0: Well, welcome again to the Investor Investor. Today we have a, an interesting young entrepreneur called Quintus Liu, who I've known for two or three years. Quintus, welcome. Could you give me a, a, something about your background?
1: Well, I was born in China in 1993, and uh, I've always looked at my father, who was an entrepreneur. He built a business from the grounds up and he scaled it up. Obviously, that was in manufacturing, which was the gold mine in China in the 1990s. I moved to Canada when I was eight years old. And then I came to England for university for undergraduate in Cambridge. So throughout university, I was looking at the various career paths and entrepreneurship obviously clicked with me. So I founded a business with my friends straight out of university, well, a few months before we graduated and raised money, expanded our product line,
0: developed a product, and now we're still at it. Yeah, we'll go through the the journey because that's really interesting. While you were at university, A, what did you study? And B, were you involved in any entrepreneurial societies there? I was studying a mechanical engineering degree in Cambridge, four-year
1: degree, and I was involved with quite a few societies. That's actually how my journey started in entrepreneurship. I was initially a VP of marketing at a society called QTech, Cambridge University Technology Enterprise Club. And then... A U.S.-based venture capitalist named Michael Baum came into Cambridge to promote his program called Founder.org. What Founder.org does is it works with universities around the world, the top research universities, and funds startups right out of university by founders who are within one year of graduating from university. So I was recruited as a local university associate by Mr. Michael Baum, who is uh, worth hundreds of millions from his previous successful exits. I was very inspired by the American way of doing things combining that with the British mentality of research and excellence and in attention to details. So I kind of combined those aspects of what I learned from the Americans and the British,
0: and we started this business after being inspired by Michael Baum. So let's start with the business. So you had how many co-founders did you have, and what was their split of of skills? Okay, so initially we had four co-founders. I was the one who was very savvy
1: in business development and business strategy, uh, we had an initial co-founder who was an expert. He brought the idea in through uh, his understanding of biochemical and the biomedical needs. And we had two other co-founders, one of them who was specializing in marketing and design user experience, and the other in technology infrastructure, who is still leading the technical team today. So that team eventually grew from four co-founders down to three co-founders because one left, and that happens And now we're a team of nine or 10 working full-time
0: in Cambridge. Excellent. Can we just talk a little bit about why the co-founder left? Because the audience is interested in this. Commonly, I will say, if I'm lecturing, that four co-founders becomes three. And this is an example of that.
1: Oh, I didn't know it was a common thing. But I think when you have three co-founders, there's natural equilibrium because a table on three, I'm being a little metaphysical here, a table stands more stable on three than it does on four. With three, you have a perfect match And you have a tiebreaker when opinions don't match up. With four, it tends to be a split among two and two. And it's just more difficult to get along. And um, if you're looking at an early stage startup, for a team of three, I'm the CEO. So I'm holding the team together. I'm equally focused on product and the commercial side. One co-founder is purely on commercials and the other is purely on product. With four, you're always going to have a bit of a struggle of who's doing what. It's a little murky initially of who's actually doing what. And the actual departure of this co-founder, was that easy on both sides? One of the things that when I look back that I'm very proud of is how we handled that professionally. So the co-founder, we all knew that it wasn't really going to work successfully. So we were able to make the departure as smooth as possible. He delivered some
0: great ideas to the team before he left. So it was handled very professionally. Well done, well done. So then you're now three co-founders. Have you left university at this point or just left? We have
1: just left university. So the timeline was we started the idea in February. We graduated in June and we raised money from Cambridge Enterprise in November to truly kick off the business. So it was a very bumpy ride, but it was also condensed in a very short period. And Cambridge Enterprise, can you just describe that to the listeners? Cambridge Enterprise is the commercialization arm of Cambridge University. So they spot and nurture and fund ideas coming straight from the university and try to make them real successful businesses. So we were kind of a special case because Cambridge Enterprise typically invests in high research oriented and uh, IP heavy businesses, whereas we are also scientifically focused in terms of solving a medical problem, but we're also focused on market and many of the typical startup elements of social media, sales, marketing and commercial software development. And what was the original idea? Because I think you've pivoted slightly since then. Yes, yes. The original idea was solving a problem in medical compliance or designing a unique computer-based algorithm to retrieve data from pharmacy IT systems and convert that into medicine taking schedules for patients. So that was the initial idea. Why we pivoted? We're much more commercially focused now on linking up pharmacies around the country into a gigantic network where patients can order their prescriptions effectively. The reason we pivoted was because simply saying we needed a buyer for our solution. And uh, working with our early partner pharmacies, they were nice enough to work with us to develop the adherence solution, but nobody was willing to pay out of their pockets so patients can simply take their pills on time. They want the patients to also order their pills on time and book more services from the pharmacies and generate themselves revenue, which made sense from a commercial perspective. So we thought we could either go down the path of research and raise money for research, hopefully sell the data to pharmaceuticals, or we could make some revenue early on, build up the business with organic cash flow and scale the network before anything else. So we went the route where we're building consumer software, and
0: it went on from there. And the name of the company is Healthera. Healthera. That's health, followed by ERA. Has that name changed as well, or was that the name since day one? Uh, the name from day one was Circuit
1: Technology. It was a reference, sort of an obscure reference to an Egyptian god of health <laughs> and sanctity. Uh, we gradually changed that because nobody knew what we're talking
0: about. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So you had some funding. Is it in the public domain how much funding you had from Cambridge Enterprise to start with? Yeah. Cambridge Enterprise plus family, friends, and angels was
1: 300000 Later on, we raised much more than that through government grants and development contracts since we built a relation with NHS, especially their award funding bodies. Our commitment was in 2015, and A final sign-off in 2016,
0: mid-2016. Yeah, so we're only talking 15 months since then. So you started spending the money, obviously, on hiring. So can you tell me a bit about your hiring and potentially firing or churn journey?
1: Well, okay, I will have a lot to say about that because hiring and firing, if anybody asks me, I'll always say hiring and firing is the most difficult part or building a team is the hardest part of building a business because once you have the idea in place, theoretically, given that you can make Great people come out of thin air. Anything is doable with people, but it's not like that. Hiring is very difficult. When you're a small business that nobody has heard about, you have very low credibility and it's very difficult to hire the best engineers like that. So you have to really attract them with sometimes equity, sometimes the dream, the vision, but also to look through and sift through. But even harder than that is once you hire someone who knows more than you on that specific field, how do you manage them? If you're absolutely going to go hands off then you might get tricked and duped into thinking that they're doing something when they're not. The key thing is to both give them the flexibility to expand and to be creative as well as set strict expectations as if a big corporation would so that they're working within your guidelines, but they're working to the best of their creativities
0: within that guidelines. And none of the three of you, and you'd be about 23 years old at that point, had managed people before. No, we have barely been managed before, so let alone managed people. But now I think...
1: We're becoming stricter with our rules, setting up guidelines and policies so that the policies can manage themselves. And we're becoming quite good managers. We all have slightly different management styles, and we all directly manage some of our employees. Some of us are a bit more lenient and almost motherly in nature, while the others are tougher and, and, and no nonsense taken. But all of us, are, we all care very much, very deeply about our employees, about their welfare. And
0: are the employees all based in one location or spread around the world?
1: We've had occasions where we had to have contractors and part-time and short-term employees from different places. but now the vast majority of the team, besides one salesperson is based in the office and that's how we feel it works best. We don't agree with the recent, if you can call it the trend of working remotely and people promoting the concept of freedom. We think that having the team, especially the engineering team, working next to each other is the best is the most productive way to track progress to ensure accountability and to ensure a strong team bond. So we believe in strongly in working in the same office. Right now we have still a small office. We nearly have to double the size now, but Cambridge is a great place to hire engineers and people to work together.
0: Excellent, okay. So you pivoted to some extent because of doing some market research and effectively moving towards market. Before we move on to the markets and how you found those people, you have, as you say, had quite large government funding from both from the NHS and I think from Innovate UK. What were those projects for?
1: Okay, the NHS project is our product branded in a way that aligns with NHS interests, which is cutting down the incidence of accidents and emergency attendance. The government has a huge problem with, especially in the winter month, people coming into A&E, and research shows something like 10 or 20% of those attendances could be prevented if the patients were taking their medications properly. So naturally, it became a fit for the government to fund a project that deals with medical compliance. What they like, especially about our project, was the fact that we didn't need government funding to actually run the project. The pharmacies are funding it. We're funding it through private market. They're essentially putting in some seed capital to make it grow. A second project was by Innovate UK. And how we won that funding was through working closely with a pharmacy software provider who is a leading provider in Europe for any sort of healthcare or pharmacy IT. The reason that was attractive is, first of all, is one of the first ones that integrate a well-established healthcare system that you might think takes years and years to evolve, we're integrating that with a fast-moving startup product. So bringing the best of both worlds. And that is one of the barriers that most startups have a lot of difficulty in overcoming, in working with the establishment. They all want to build their own thing and they're good at doing that. But how do you make the data work? Not just the data, but how do you make the business model work within the established value chain? That is a difficulty that we were very fortunate to overcome with this partnership and with this grant.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about route to market in a minute. Yeah. It's interesting to use the word capital because it's actually non-dilutative capital, something that all startups should love, because effectively you've got probably many hundreds of thousands of pounds without actually having any dilution to your ownership. These were grants and Con- an contracts. SPRI? And contracts. contracts. Yes, yeah. Exactly.
1: yeah, so uh, what we like to say is that, uh, as a buffer to our equity base so we could raise less money and do more. And the people who do invest in us would own a bigger part of the company because they don't have to invest next to some huge VCs initially. So it was very helpful, definitely, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. And of course, route to market and market fit, of course, are really, really important. So you did this by working with pharmacies or working with the NHS, etc., to try and work out what was needed most from the original IP you generated. Yeah,
1: mostly pharmacies because I think... For a young entrepreneur coming out of university, without having worked in an industry for a few years, it's very difficult to find a real need besides finding someone to go to the pub with and those overdone and very trite ideas. So the more we work with our customer pharmacies, the more we understand and dig deep into the industry, into the value chain, find out what's happening in the industry, what are the changes, and how are they overcoming the challenges posed by these changes. And we find that there is several changes. One is the Amazonization of things. <laughs> That's a new word. <laughs> Amazonization of things, which is posing a challenge. And the other is drastic government cuts to their baseline. So they have to innovate. And going along with the wave of basically demand-driven innovation, we want to be at the forefront of this innovation by taking them from where they are to where they could be with innovation. So without going around in circles, I think you have to let the customers tell you what the needs are. Simple as that. And before you dive into building many products, uh, the greatest products, and we've made this uh, mistake ourselves, find out if this is something they would actually want to use and pay for. And not just your friends in industry that will say anything to make you happy, but the no-nonsense pharmacy bosses who own 20 shops, would they pay for it? If they would, then probably it's got value.
0: And you've done that by getting some of them using it already, and you'll start charging for it shortly, won't you? Yes, yes.
1: We initially made friends with all the independent pharmacies in Cambridge. But naturally, as you can imagine, over time, their opinions became of less value because they knew us so well. So what really kicked off the company was making our first full-time sales hire. As founders, we all had a tendency to do sales, so we built our initial partnerships early on. But to really scale up, we hired this sales lady with many, many years of experience in sales. Working with her, we expanded our customer base to over 100 pharmacies. And with a group of 100, you get tons of different voices, honest voices, who because they don't know you so well. And they have a high expectation on your product because they don't know that you're a startup out of university. They think you're a well-established company. But when they dig deeper, it, it makes it interesting, not worse for them.
0: And then, of um, course, working with this pharmacy software provider gave you the route to market to the pharmacy. So presumably they introduced, this company introduced you to these pharmacies, or actually, some of them anyway. Actually, is the number is
1: much less than we would have liked because working with a big company with a lot of departments and uh, each department having its own priority and interests, it was very difficult to get a lot of material benefits out of them. There was a partnership which added credibility to us pitching, but we still did all the pitching. We used various methods, but we had much more luck getting referrals from a small union of pharmacies than with a large software company. It's very important to have strategic partnerships early on in the business, but never count on them. You still have to do the nitty gritty. You, you still have to do the work. Even when the interests are aligned, nobody would have your interests at heart more than you do. So the company itself, you still have to think about doing all the sales and marketing.
0: And something that many startup companies struggle with, particularly if they're disrupting a market, is pricing. Have you managed to work out yet what the value you're creating is and what proportion of that you can capture, i.e. the price you're charging? Absolutely.
1: So what we find is these pharmacy buyers, because we're promising a return on investment in terms of more customers and more prescriptions, it's very difficult to charge them a heavy upfront before the benefits actually come in. So, But we found a sweet spot for that, which was about £50 a month or 300 to £500 a year when they're buying it in bulk. And this is an amount they're willing to invest as a ticket to this gateway, to this new model. So that's the initial price. After that point, the model that works best for this industry and for what we're promising is a commission based on how many new patients we bring them and how much more volume in dispensing we give them. So for our first four months, we uh, increase the partner pharmacies' dispensing volume by about 15%, next to their competitors losing one or two percent around the area. So naturally prescriptions are being drawn to these more competitive pharmacies and uh, charging a small amount on the additional value we generate, we can generate thousands of revenue per pharmacy,
0: not just hundreds. Yeah, that model doesn't work in the longer term because it's in every single pharmacy and they can't be stealing from each other. But in the short to medium term, that's fine. In the short to medium term, yeah, absolutely fine. But but you're also working in other methods of monetization, aren't you? Exactly.
1: So what we discovered was, in terms of market gaps in the UK, there are prescription services that pharmacies do for patients, but there isn't something that's so valuable that patients are paying for at the moment. We decided to invent a solution that is inspired by a similar solution in the States where patients are paying $20 a month for This is something that is going to be released in the next coming months. And by building something that people didn't pay for yet, but will pay for, this opens up an entire new dimension, which adds value to the market instead of just channel value from other
0: sources. Okay. Can we talk about defensibility? Mm -hmm. You don't Obviously, this isn't patentable, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So how defensible do you think this idea is or how far you've taken the company so far?
1: This idea is the type that gets more defensible the bigger the traction gets, because the appearance of success itself is a big deterrent to newcomers. When we first came in, there were next to no competitors in this space. Now there's about one or two, but we're all working in different ways towards the same pool of prescriptions, so we don't really see them as competitors. In terms of defensibility, our network with pharmacies is going to be a strong shield against any competitors because there are only so many the market can hold in companies that do exactly what we do. There's no direct competitor in this field yet. And the next defensibility is the partnerships and technology integrations. Once you work with these pharmacy system providers and machine providers, then your next integration and the next one after will be very small, marginal cost to you. Whereas for new competitors, they have to rebuild all the relationships and figure out the technologies. For larger companies, it becomes uh, more feasible just to acquire or rent the whole thing. And for smaller ones, they would go for a different route and
0: not challenge you in this market. Thank you. Yeah. Can we just talk about the advice you've had from shareholders, from advisors, and from board members? So, you know, your board is being consisted of more than just the three founders, has yeah, it? Our board is five.
1: Three founders, investor director from Cambridge, and a industry executive that we brought in from the Netherlands who uh, works in pharmacy automation and has 20 years of experience in the field.
0: How did you find him or her from Holland?
1: Oh, just through networking, through LinkedIn, so a tip for entrepreneurs keep networking and you never know who you're going to run into so <laughs> and did they join the board quite early on when They the- joined the board before we re- even raised funding just out of entirely out of interest now there's commercial synergy between our businesses but initially it was just out of Interest in what the market is doing out of passion for helping young entrepreneurs.
0: So, is it he or she mm-hmm. from Holland? Is yeah. it a ma- he, ma- he, he. He, he? Does, does he. he come over to board meetings from Holland?
1: Yeah, yeah, he flies in every month. So, that's a lot of dedication to the business.
0: Excellent. And what do you think you've learned from him and is it Tanya on, uh, Tanya on and, the yeah, board? Tanya yeah. on
1: the board. What we learned from Tanya, who was a lead investor for the last round, as a layer of accountability to the business because now you're accountable to a level above the modern corporate structure, always shareholders on top, then the directors, then the management. So now you have a level of shareholders who are not management that you have to be accountable to, you have to be accountable to their interests. So you have to spend money wisely and expand the business fast and do whatever it takes to benefit the guys who own the company. So that's the level of accountability,
0: which adds to how the founders are performing. And what about things like advice with hiring and firing and officers and all the other things that one needs to do. They
1: act almost as a chairperson. They act as a voice of sanity that are not so deeply involved in the daily firefighting and battles. They can take a level up and look at how things should be done from a greater perspective, comparing you against other portfolio companies, reminding you to always keep an eye out on competitors and threats and opportunities. And they've all either intentionally or unintentionally given us advice or connections that would have a butterfly effect on the company's success.
0: That's a great analogy. Can you explain the butterfly effect?
1: Then? Okay, so one introduction leads to another introduction, which leads to a big strategic deal. That's the kind of butterfly effect. Nobody would expect that would happen initially, but it happened. And for the Dutch board member, for example, he made an introduction to a pharmacy, which had this brilliant idea. We met, we had this brilliant idea of building a, this online presence. And so one thing leads to another. It's like solving a puzzle as you go along. You never know.
0: What's going to happen next? And what about the rest of the shareholder base, which were mainly family and friends at this point, weren't they?
1: A small fund from the States, which was run by my high school classmates, so keep her friends close, (laughs) and some family and friends, and my father being an entrepreneur also invested in the business with strict standards as well. um, (laughs) Yes,
0: father-son relationship there. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Look after my money. Yeah. (laughs) And have they contributed at all, the shareholders, to this? They're probably not because they're further away.
1: They are a bit further away, but one of our shareholders comes to board meetings as an observer, and some of them ask for more updates than others. But the ones that do ask for update, they also help the company with staying accountable, which is so important. It's easy to be accountable to ourselves. Everybody has a tendency of tweaking the standards to what, it's really, what we're exactly. really doing. Rash- post rationalizing Post-rationalizing. But when you're rationalizing things and justifying things to stakeholders, you have to be a lot more logical.
0: And early stage, it's quite common also for people to build up advisory boards. Have you done that?
1: We have advisors, one from the Institute of Public Health, who spent 20, 30 years in medical compliance research, who helped us bring up the idea and design the solution around the idea initially. We don't have a formal advisory board because there aren't enough advisors to form a board yet. As we go along, we may think of doing that, a business advisory board.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I've got examples in my portfolio where they've done it effectively and ones where they struggle to do it. So, you know, you're no different there. You're raising money at the moment. I know I saw you pitch quite recently. Can you tell me, not necessarily about that raise, but what you feel the journey will be like in the next year or two?
1: We feel like we're at a
0: stage of rapid
1: development and inflection. Our first model has been proven and tested with the pharmacy base, and now we're just about to bring more and more value which takes capital to get there, but we're also very hopeful because these models were proposed by our partners and executing them is the simple next step. So how we feel about the business going forward, we'll be growing the business, the team significantly through the next half a year, then raising a Series A to scale up the marketing and sales front, potentially outside of the UK.
0: Yes, exactly. That was my next question was you've obviously got connections in Canada, you've seen you got connections in China. What's the next market you want to approach? The next market is more likely to be Europe.
1: We already have some customers in Ireland, I forgot to mention. And with our board presence in continental Europe, Europe seems to be a logical next step. Compared to Canada and the States, prescriptions are mostly government paid for. So it does make continental Europe more similar to the UK than perhaps America or Canada are. So that's our next target,
0: the European market in america you may well have a competitor of some form i guess
1: it would be difficult to
0: consider america before at least a series b funding yes and in the longer term where do you see this business going is it going to exit is it going to float is it going to be a big business that you'll own for many years this type of business is potentially one that can go many ways
1: our ideal scenario is to build this to be big and float the business and return money to shareholders but also keep running the business because we feel that it has potential to tackle into a huge market that is worth many billions and the growth doesn't really have a limit at this stage but an earlier exit is also possible
0: okay and if there is something that keeps you awake at night worrying about it what would that be at the moment what's your main worry within the business
1: well i don't sleep a lot so so it doesn't what, keep you my, awake <laughs> so it doesn't know, so i think everything that's happening on a daily basis could be construed is quite worrying so to some extent as founders we've become desensitized to things keeping us awake at night if good news happen great we'll have a beer and celebrate if bad things happen then pass it on what can you do we'll focus on what's happening next so in the literal sense keeping me awake nothing much but in a figurative sense what's keeping me awake at night is nothing you can't think of anything can you there has to be something Ah, yes. I'm really worried that my next shipment of monitors won't be coming in on time because we have new employees joining us. That's
0: the worst thing you could worry about. Well done, Quintus. It's been really great talking to you. I've learned a lot from you. It's been a couple of years since I first met you, and I really wish you extremely well in your journey. You're going to make a big difference in this industry. Thank you. Oh,
1: thank you. Certainly hopeful. And it's uh, certainly great to be at the crib of a professional angel investor. There's much more papers than I thought there would be.
0: Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.